shoulder, but a kind of a brace that says, my life now belongs to Jesus. Does that characterize you? Does that characterize you? Here I go preaching. I'm not even started my sermon yet. (laughs) Sorry. I don't apologize for preaching the gospel. Forgive me, Lord. Let's pray together, and then we will get into a text of Scripture. Is that okay? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us now as we look at just one verse that is full of so much more than I can say on this evening. I pray that you would give us eyes to see the things that we need to see here, maybe things that we haven't considered before. Protect me, Father, from saying things that aren't according to your word, and help us to see and love the things that are according to your word. And Lord, I pray that any who are in the room right now who haven't embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior would tonight (laughs) draw a line in the sand and say, I'm no longer going to do my thing, but I'm going to follow Jesus because he is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world. I pray that you would bring salvation to those who desperately need it tonight. And I pray that you would bring comfort and hope and encouragement to us, your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I saw a comic today that had two cavemen discussing Good Friday. One says, I hate the term Good Friday. The other asks, why? He says, because my Lord was hanged on a tree on that day. And the other caveman says, well, if you were going to be hanged on that day and he volunteered to take your place, how would you feel? Good, he said. The other guy turns and walks away and says, have a nice day. Good Friday is good, brothers and sisters, friends, because on this day we remember the glorious and comforting truth that Jesus died on the cross in our place as our substitute, absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve so that everyone, everyone who turns away from their sin, puts their faith in him, will be forgiven and accepted by God. Do you want to be forgiven and accepted by God? Turn away from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. There's no gimmicks. This whole Christianity thing is not easy, but it's not complicated. It's hard, but simple. Stop living for yourself. Start living for King Jesus. And you will be accepted by God and live with God forever and ever and ever. That's the good news of the gospel. And this is really good news for people like us, people who've broken God's rules, therefore stand under the curse of the law, death. Death was crushed to death through Jesus' death on our behalf. Now, there's so much that the Bible says about the cross, the New Testament says about the cross. It's honestly hard to pick a text to preach to you on a Good Friday like this. A text about the cross because there's just so many to choose from. Um, I thought I was going to go one direction and then I started reading this week and I was like, man, we need to, we need to think about Galatians 2.20. And then a sister, I think it might have been you, Stephanie, I'm putting you on the spot right now. I was like, hey, Galatians 2.20 really been ministering to me. 
this week. Was that you? <laughs> and so Galatians 2.20. Let's look at it. Will you grab a Bible? Galatians 2.20, one verse. I think it's page 914 in those black Bibles in front of you, 914, Galatians 2.20. A familiar passage for many, maybe a passage you've memorized, but a passage that speaks directly to Jesus' death on the cross, and more importantly, what it means for us. I'm going to try to get into some of the application of the cross for our lives. So tonight won't be so much a doctrinal study, won't be so much a here's what Jesus did, and here's what it means theologically, but rather here's what it means for you according to this text. So Galatians 2.20. If you got it, say amen. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This verse is simple enough and known by many, but it's often misunderstood and misapplied. This verse has led many to think that when we become a Christian, we lose our individual identity or our individuality. Many have maybe unconsciously or unknowingly thought that, man, based on passages like this, God tolerates us for Jesus' sake. But we need to understand, I'm going to try to unfold this from this text, that God loves us and not just Christ instead of us. That's the banner over all I want to say tonight. Can I say it again? I hope it sticks. God loves you and not just Christ instead of you. Please hear that. I'm going to try to show you that from this verse, other places. God loves you, friend, brother and sister. He loves you. You, you, like he loves you individually, not just Christ instead of, he's not just tolerating you, but he, you know, really loves Jesus, not you. No, 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 that's not what the Bible teaches. God loves you. Three things, three things in this verse I hope will draw this out. First, notice our union with Christ, union with Christ. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. What does being executed with someone else even mean? What is Paul talking about? I've been executed with Christ? Later he'll say he's been buried and raised with Christ. What does this even mean when these events happened 2,000 years ago? If we apply this verse to our own lives, what are we talking about? You're not crucified. You're not buried and dead. You're right there. So what does this mean? Language like this is all over the New Testament. Here's what it means. It's meant to show us what theologians have called for a long time, union with Christ. If you want to substitute the word marriage for union, you can. I think that's a fair substitution. Jared can correct me on this later. Union with Christ. Connection, fellowship, marriage, intimacy, oneness with Christ. Union. All over the New Testament, you'll find language like this. This idea is everywhere. Now, this kind of talk 
can sound strange to those who haven't grown up in the church, maybe those who haven't been to church very much. See, Christians, we don't just claim that Jesus died and rose again. <laughs> we don't just claim, we do claim that, but we, we take that a step further. We claim that Jesus died and rose again and that we right now somehow have fellowship with him. That's what we claim. So you can understand why unbelievers kind of think we're crazy. Some guy who lived 2,000 years ago was apparently crucified, apparently rose from the dead, and somehow we're in some kind of relationship with him, but he's not even around. Like, where is he? I love talking to my five-year-old about this. Like, how do we believe? Why do we believe in a guy we can't see? How would you answer that? <laughs> I'll let you talk to my son if you want. Somehow, we benefit from the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and ongoing intercession of Jesus right now. How is this so? Because of union with Christ. Because of union with Christ. Paul says he was crucified with Christ, but Christ lives in him. But Paul wasn't crucified. And Jesus was in heaven then, the right hand of God, and is still in heaven now. So how do we have this union? Here's how. This is not rocket surgery. Here it is. This is a plain teaching of the New Testament. We have union with Christ if we've trusted in Christ and been united to him by the spirit of Christ. To say it another way, you have been married to Christ if you've trusted in Christ and been given the spirit of Christ. Again, this phrase, union with Christ, isn't found in the New Testament, but the idea is everywhere. You'll see all over the New Testament that believers are in Christ. Christ is in us. We're members of Jesus' body. We're his bride, married to him, the groom. It says we're clothed with Christ, that we'll be found in him on the last day. This kind of language is everywhere. Union with Christ is a central point of the New Testament. We're like branches on a vine. Remember John 15? We're connected to Jesus and draw our life from him. If we weren't connected, we wouldn't be alive spiritually. How does this happen? How does this union happen? Again, it happens through faith by the Spirit. John tells us this in 1 John 4.13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Spirit. So the Spirit of God unites us to the Son of God, bringing together what was once apart. Now, These benefits, these marital benefits, if you will, are only for those who have been joined together with Christ through faith. Those who haven't been married to Christ remain outside of Christ and therefore do not benefit from his death, burial, and resurrection. So the question for you, friends, is not, not, did you pray a prayer one day at youth camp? Did you walk down an aisle? Did you sign a card and get dunked in a baptistry? And are you doing your best to do Christian-y things? That's not the question. The question is, are you in Christ? And is he in you? Are you in him? And is he in you? If the answer is yes, his Holy Spirit will testify with our spirits, Paul says, that we are children of God. In other words, if you're united with Christ, his spirit will make that clear to you. Yes, there will be challenges and doubts and conflict all along the way. Man, I've doubted my salvation. Can we just have a moment of honesty? Have you ever doubted your salvation, brother or sister? My goodness. I remember walking back in class 
You know, in college, so many times I'd walk up my steps and I would just sit down on the top step. I'd try to get my mind around what the heck was going on in my heart. My wife had lost her sight. I had no idea what was going on. I was really struggling. And the Lord was faithful to keep pulling me, carrying me along. So union with Christ doesn't mean you'll never doubt. Doubt is way more normal than you probably realize. Way more ordinary for a Christian. So don't be scared of that. The Spirit of Christ testifies with our spirit, we're children of God. Let me say it another way. Married people know that they're married, even if there's some conflict in the marriage. If you're married, does someone have to tell you you're married? Hey, Bill, by the way, remember? Karen? Are you sure? <laughs> right? Remember? The Bible calls us the bride of Christ. We're married to Christ. Those married to Christ will know that he's their husband by the power of his spirit. Now, what does all this stuff have to do? What does union with Christ have to do with God loving us and not just Jesus instead of us? I said that's the main point. God loves us and not just Jesus instead of us. It means that your value, dignity, and future are secure in Jesus Christ and not based on your performance and your behavior and your religion. Our security in Christ is not based on our perceived acceptability before others or God. Paul says, for you have died, elsewhere in Colossians 3.3, 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's like, John, I'm not dead. I know you're not dead. You're right here. <laughs> but this text says you have died, but now your life is hidden with Christ. So that means for everyone who believes in Christ, your life is so secure in Christ that no matter how you feel, what you look like, what you do, what you don't do, what you will do, what you won't do, no matter what's happening around you and in you, you are secure in Christ. That will never change. Ever. Why? Because God loves you. You're His. God doesn't just love Christ instead of you. He loves you and He married you to His Son by His Spirit. You see how union with Christ starts to shape our identity and free us from so much bondage. So union with Christ, secondly. The second thing we can notice here in this text, our union with Christ doesn't remove our individuality. As I said earlier, it doesn't remove our individuality. It's easy to read a passage like Galatians 2.20 and think that we've been removed and that only Christ is left. I mean, Paul says, it is no longer I who live. But he's alive when he writes that. So what does he mean? It's no longer I who live, but he's alive. So what's he talking about? Does Paul mean that those married to Jesus lose their existence? They lose their meaning? They lose their value? What is he talking about? Does a Christian lose their individuality? No, absolutely not. Charles Spurgeon, a great British preacher from the 19th century, preached a sermon on this text, and he noted that 
The first person singular pronouns are swarming everywhere in this text. Just read the text with me again and, and count how many times you see a first person singular pronoun. And for all you non-English majors, just try to keep up, okay? Here we go. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How many was that? Seven. Seven. Seven times. Paul uses the first person singular pronoun. Now elsewhere, Paul will stress the communal nature of the church. And he would go so far to say, and we say around here in our church, like, if you say you're a Christian but you're not connected to a church, then I wonder whether you really understand what a Christian is. By definition, a Christian is part of the body of Christ, not a lone ranger kind of floating around doing whatever. But here, Paul zeroes in on the individual. He's showing us that God's love in Christ by his spirit, moves all the way down to our level, to the individual level. And Spurgeon notes that this is a distinguishing mark of the Christian religion. God doesn't treat us as cookie-cutter creatures, but rather creates and redeems our individuality. Spurgeon provides a great analogy on this point. He says, quote, In the nocturnal heavens there had long been observed bright masses of light. The astronomers called them nebulae. Am I saying that right? Nebulae. Thank you for your astronomers. Nebulae. They supposed them to be stores of shapeless, chaotic matter until the telescope of Herschel resolved them, resolved them into distinct stars. Listen to what, what Spurgeon draws from this. What the telescope did for stars, the religion of Christ, when received into the heart, does for men. You see what he's saying? The gospel does, the gospel says to you, you're not just a blob of useless, chaotic, shapeless, formless matter who means nothing. No, no, no. The gospel brings your life into sharper focus. It even said this way, and I agree with this completely. The gospel actually makes you more fully human. Not, not more alive physically, physiologically, but but more alive spiritually, alive spiritually, in relationship with your creator, the, the kind of existence you were meant to have from the beginning but was broken because of sin. So when you put your faith in Christ and you have that restor restored relationship with your creator, you're more human in a sense than you've ever been before. But you're also, you're also you. You're also you. Why is this important? Because we often think, and I have struggled with this a lot, that the Christian life, we often think of the Christian life in ways that reflect our personalities and our proclivities and our interests. We often seek to shape our Christian lives around our favorite Bible teachers, our heroes in the faith, our favorite books. But this way of thinking undermines the goodness and uniqueness of every individual Christian. Christ saved you. And he 
want to remake you after his image, not you into the image of someone else. Just by way of application, this is why it's really healthy, brothers and sisters, to read as widely as possible. It's easy just to read the books you love. You know how you like, if you read too much of the same author, you just start to regurgitate what they say all the time. You know, read as widely as possible. The Christian tradition is so rich. You're like, well, I don't agree with this guy over here or this girl over here. Like, okay, that's fine. But you're not the first one. You won't be the last one to consider who Christ is, who God is, what the Bible says. Now, let me zero in even further on this. Many of us may be prone to think that being a good Christian means being super extroverted. Like, we need to share the gospel. All Every human you see, you've got to tell them about Jesus, you know. You've got to be at everything. You've got to be vocal. You've got to tell everyone of what you're thinking, how you're feeling. You know, you've got to just, you've got to just pour forth extroversion. Is that even a word? I don't know. But that's not what, that's not what this text says. If you're introverted, you don't have to become extroverted to be a good Christian. Some people are just more introverted. Some are more extroverted. Actually, I'm very introverted. I'd much prefer to sit in my office, read books, and drink coffee. Anybody with me on that? Some of you, my sister, I'm going to see my sister tomorrow. She's so extroverted. She thrives on people. And I'm like, I love you, Jen, but I got to go. It's so cool how God wires us differently. Some seek adventure. Some prefer quiet. Some prefer action. Others prefer reflection. Some deal with stress by running, some by reading. The point is that we can express a faithful identity in Christ no matter how we're wired. Jesus didn't die to make us all the same. Jesus didn't die to make us all the same. He died to set us free from sin so that we as individuals would become more fully who God made us to be. Every tree in God's garden will bear fruit. By his spirit. But this is far from saying that every tree must look the same. Godliness, not sameness, is the goal. For those who love podcasts, I'm not a huge podcast guy, but I do listen to some. I'd encourage you, brothers and sisters, to not listen to the same preachers all the time. I'd encourage you to come to our church and listen to the mediocre preaching here, but what happens... Drill into this was what happens if we listen and learn from the same people all the time, then we're going to be echo chamber. We're going to be living in the echo chamber. We're going to be, we're not thinking for ourselves. We're going to be conformed more to the image of the person we like the most, or love listening to the most, or enjoy the most. What we must do is zero in on Jesus Christ. We must zero in on Him. And then as we all grow in and in reflecting him, we all end up growing up in God's garden with very unique individuality. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Don't think for a minute, brother or sister, that because you're not this or you're not that, you're not like this guy in the church or this girl in the church, that you're somehow inferior. Not true. Not true. Sameness is not the goal. Godliness is the goal. Now, let's look at the last thing. Notice, thirdly, 
that union with Christ isn't a, a universal phenomenon. In other words, union with Christ isn't something that everyone has. In fact, I don't even, I don't even presume that everyone in this room has it. I'm not trying to be mean, by the way. I'm just speaking honestly. I don't presume that every soul in front of me is married to Jesus Christ. I never want to make that mistake. I assume that some of you will yet be married to Christ through faith, by his spirit. But union with Christ isn't a universal phenomenon. Like Jesus didn't die, then all of a sudden the whole world is married to him. No, what does Paul say? Look at what he says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by what? What does it say? Faith. faith. I live by faith. I live by faith in the Son of God. This begs the question, what is faith? There's a lot of ways we can answer this. I'll just say a couple quick things. Faith is the Bible's term to describe a renewed, a renewed relationship with God. It's, as one scholar says, the relational dynamic in which we see God and our neighbor as who they really are, and then we respond accordingly. So faith isn't believing some facts about Jesus. It's seeing God for who he is, seeing people for who they are, and then responding accordingly. You understand. Faith means you understand that God is holy, there's no one or nothing like him, that he's the creator of everything, that he made you in his image, that you've rebelled against him, broken his law, not like once back in high school, but like all the time, broken his law, preferred everything but him, and yet in mercy, he sent Christ to save you. To die on the cross for your sins, and on the third day, rise up from the grave victorious, so that everyone who puts their trust in him, turns away from their sins, will be forgiven and accepted by God. Faith sees God for who he is, and others for who they are, and then and then responds accordingly. It's not a feeling. Like earlier as we were singing, I'm like, man, this is awesome. Thank you, Mason, Sue, for leading us. Thank you so much for leading us. There's something about singing with the saints, isn't there? Can't wait to do it again on Sunday. But those feelings, which are good and right and even holy, those feelings aren't the same as faith. You're like, John, man, when I... When I go to, you know, I want the lights down low, and man, I just, I just want to feel all the feels, you know, the goosebumps. Well, the problem with that is that's not faith. That's not faith. That's not faith. Not necessarily sin, but it's not faith. Faith is a response to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Living by faith means believing. These last two things that Paul says there in Galatians 2.20. The life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. And then look at the last two things he says. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith means believing that Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. Many believe that God loved the world generally, but even Maturing Christians can get uncomfortable when they're told, Jesus came for you. Jesus gave himself up for you. We struggle just to look one another in the eye. No wonder we struggle feeling secure in God's presence. Even though we, 
we have a vague understanding, a vague sense that he loves the world, but we struggle to just be in his presence. Faith is a battle because we question deep down whether God could actually be kindly disposed toward us. Usually thinking that he's mildly displeased with us. So let's do a little exercise. We're going to land the plane in just a minute. If I asked you, does God love you? You would say, does God love you? That's, that's, that's kind of an easy, easy one, right? Um, it's tempting just to repeat the automatic answer we've always heard, we've always known. But underneath that quick response lurks deep insecurities about God's attitude towards us. Like, yes, John, yes, God loves me. What's the point? <laughs> What's the point? Well, the point is, I think, best made by asking you another question that I hope will help us see more clearly how we view God's posture toward us. So instead of asking, does God love you, what if I ask it this way? Friends, does, does God like you? Does he like you? Does he like you? See, telling someone that God loves them is like throwing a marshmallow at them. <laughs> it hits them, but it feels so light, they're not actually sure if it touched them or not. We know we're supposed to believe that God loves us, but when we probe deeper, we have legitimate doubts about how God sees us. Am I alone in this? We have legitimate doubts about how God sees us. The word like carries with it, the connotation of delight, preference, inclination. For example, I like coffee. I like books. I like being outside. I like hanging out with my wife and my children when they're not present. Uh, what, what, what am I saying when I say that? I'm saying that those things bring me great delight. I'm saying that I prefer those things over other things. We hear our parents, our spouse, maybe we hear God say, I love you, but we wonder if they actually delight in us. You see, the word love comes so loaded with obligation and duty that it can lose all sense of pleasure and satisfaction. Professor Kelly Capick uh, professor of theology out at Covenant College in Georgia, says, quote, like can remind us of an aspect of God's love that we far too easily forget. And he says this, unless we understand the gospel in terms of God's fierce delight in us and not merely a wiping away of prior offenses, unless we understand God's battle for us as a dramatic personal rescue and not merely a cold forensic process, we have ignored most of the scriptures as well as the needs of the human condition. End quote. In other words, the fact that God not only like, loves you, but likes you, is meant to teach you that God enjoys you, brother and sister. Think of it. Would you marry someone you didn't enjoy? <laughs> Don't answer that. You're like, I just really want to be married. 
Would you marry somebody you don't delight in? Would you marry something you're, someone you're not inclined to? The doctrine of creation and the doctrine of redemption teach us this. God, we can say that this is true because God created us, and he doesn't just make garbage, right? Why would he make something to be like, this is trash, I don't like this? No, that's ridiculous. He likes us because he created us, and because he's redeemed us in Christ. Three times the Bible says that God's people are the apple of his eye. Isaiah says that God calls his people, my delight is in her. Zephaniah says that the Lord rejoices over us with gladness and loud singing. Christian, do you believe that God delights in you? Brother or sister in Christ, do you, do you stop long enough from all the stuff you have going on to hear his sweet voice singing over you? Do you stop long enough to commune with the Savior who loves you and likes you? God delights in his children just as we delight in our children. Nothing we did explains why. Like a good parent, he delights in his children simply because he made us and we are his. Friends, no one else may feel this way about you, but the only person in the universe who matters does. So tonight, I want to encourage you to let God quiet you with his love. May his delight in you free you from needing to outperform everyone else and free you from trying to be like someone else. God didn't make you to be like your friend or your sister or your brother or your mom or your dad. He made you and redeemed you to be you and increasingly grow you into the image of his son. have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. God doesn't tolerate us for Jesus' sake. He loves us and not just Christ instead of us. He doesn't just love a generic world. Friends, he loves you. Brothers and sisters, he even likes you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, there's a, a way in which even if I say all the thing, only things that are true, that these things won't, these things won't ring true in our hearts unless you come by your spirit and help us to see that you made us and redeemed us, therefore love us, and therefore like us, and therefore delight in us, and therefore want to be with us, and therefore are proud of us. And I know a lot of us are like, oh, I don't know, God's holy, and God's righteous, and God's sovereign. Yes, which makes the fact that you love us and like us even the more profound. God, bring these truths, the truths of our union with Christ, our, our unique individuality, 
truths, how we can be made right with you through faith alone. Lord, bring these truths home to our hearts. Please help us to see these things, embrace these things, love these things, share these things. Father, I'm sure, I'm, I'm confident there are many in this room, there are many who wonder if what I am saying is true. They've maybe never even considered that the God of heaven and earth looks upon them with delight. So much so that he sent his precious son to rescue them and redeem them and bring them home to his house and make them his bride. Father, I pray that you would instruct us, you would teach us, you would grow us, you would deepen our affections for you as we think about your affections for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do a couple things as we close our service. We're going to sing, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. Then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Then we're going to sing another song and be dismissed. As we sing this song, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy, please use this time to reflect on on God's heart for you as demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. Use this time to confess your sins to Him. Use this time to, if you need to, if you need to forgive another church member, use this time to do that right now before you take the supper. Use this time to examine yourselves and, and to look again at the, the cross and to remember and rejoice and not just what Christ has done for you, but who he is for you. So as we sing, come ye sinners poor and needy, let's do that work of examination together.